Well, after that, let's turn to God's word. It's a little hard to switch modes, but uh, the Bible reading today is from Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. That is on page 791 in the Bibles in the backs of the pews. And again, it's Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, there we go. Now we're, now we're going. So anyways, yeah, it's a bittersweet Sunday here. Yeah, coming into this space and this uh, season uh, for, uh, yeah, Josh and Camille. And uh, yeah, gospel goodbyes here at our church have been a, a sweet thing. And I'm so thankful for our church, the ways you guys have wrapped your arms around Josh and Camille and prayed for them, helped them load trailers and... Uh, uh, just supported them and been generous to them in so many ways. We want to extend, uh, I think, as a church, that same beautiful welcome for people that are coming in, also that same beautiful welcome to those who are going out with God's blessing. And so, yeah, thank you for your generosity to Josh and Camille. We're so thankful for them and the work that they've been able to do here at Redemption City Church, the lives that they've touched. And so, uh, grateful for that work. And uh, with that said, we, we change gears here. Um, I don't know how you do that, not awkwardly, into Mark's gospel and Jesus walking on water. And so it's good to be back and good to be in this um, gospel. I can't think of anything I would rather be doing than spending my time uh, in the life of Jesus. In a series we're calling, uh, on Mark's gospel, we're calling Amazed by Jesus. We see throughout this text People's astonishment, people's wonder, people's awe at who Jesus is. Uh, And this morning, we're going to see more of that, right? Jesus as a man of prayer, Jesus as a man on mission, more of the beauties of Jesus in our text this morning. But Mark also keeps it real. Along these expressions of astonishment, also there's hardness of heart. Uh, Not everybody um, gets Jesus. Not everybody understands who Jesus is and what he's there to do. Even Jesus' own disciples struggle with understanding who he is and what he's doing. And so Mark gives us permission to wrestle with our own doubts and our own hardness of heart and the lies that we believe. Um, And and not, not, not just people here in the church, but people in our broader culture, right? struggle with Jesus and who he is. I've tried to give a few testimonies during this season of various people as they've wrestled with 
Jesus. Some of you might have followed uh, along back in January, the Babylon Bee interviewed none other than Elon Musk, you know, the richest man in the world, to talk about all things faith and spirituality, which you know is going to be an interesting conversation because Elon Musk is a noted agnostic slash atheist, and a lot of his conversations really big on science and logic, and you know, not such a big guy into the spirituality question. He's kind of shut that conversation down in previous interviews. Uh, but it was interesting in this conversation. Um, there were some interesting moments where Elon Musk is wrestling with faith because he's talking to the Babylon Bee. You know there are going to be some humorous moments right in this conversation. So, so right in the middle of the conversation, they said, uh, to make this church, we're wondering if you could do us a quick solid and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so that, as you might guess, was kind of an awkward moment there in the conversation. And, there, and Musk is kind of like, uh, what do I do with this? Not coming from an evangelical subculture where people are getting altar calls on podcasts. He just kind of sits there, but it was interesting. He just kind of paused for a few moments. And then he said this, that there is great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus. And he goes on to list some of the wonderful things that Jesus has said and kind of just reflecting as someone who's read some of Jesus' miracles. He's like, you know, there's a lot of wisdom. There's something to be said for the teachings of Jesus. But towards the end of the conversation, he opened up a little bit about his upbringing as an Anglican and hearing all these miracle stories that we're reading about in Mark's gospel and going, you know, I can, I can get down with the teachings of Jesus on forgiveness and like, great, like some of the things that, you know, I've just down with some of the great teachers that we have around us. But it's the miracles that really were a stumbling block uh, for him, uh, particularly the feeding of the 5,000. He mentioned the sermon that Josh just preached on last week. Um, he was like, you know, he had a great line in there, like, like how Jesus fed the crowd with five loaves and three fish. I think it was actually two fish, but he was close there, right? Where did the fish and the bread come from? Would you like, you know, take a bite and the bread would just pop back up into a full loaf of bread? You know, they left out all the details. And, and so, you know, for Elon Musk as a young kid growing up in the Anglican church, just wondering like, how did this whole miracle thing work? And that's still a disconnect for him, something that's kept him from the Christian faith, right? The teaching of Jesus, as so many could affirm, wonderful, but the miracles of Jesus, whoa, we're in an entirely different world. And, and what Mark wants us to do, I think this morning, is be amazed by Jesus, but he includes these stories of hardness of heart and doubt to give us permission to wrestle with our own doubts, our own questions, our own uh, areas where we struggle with the things that Mark is telling us about Jesus. So in our text this morning, Mark starts with Jesus. Jesus is on full display. We're going to see that Jesus is a man of prayer. Uh, we're going to see in Mark uh, uh, verses 45 through 48, we're going to see that Jesus is a man on mission, and Mark closes with the disciples Doubt. And my aim for this morning's sermon is to show that the church is a safe place to work through our doubts and increasingly become people of prayer and action. So let's pray as we dive into our text this morning. Father, we can relate to the disciples' hardness of hearts. We're not always people of bold faith and action, but we want to be. 
So would you come this morning by the power of your spirit and and help us face our doubts, become people of prayer and action like Jesus? Would you stir up our hearts? Would you soften our hearts? Would you transform our hearts to be a part of what you're doing in the world? And we pray this all um, in your name and for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, so it's 11 o'clock here, and I've got... Uh, lots of uh, text to cover, so um, strap on your seatbelt, I guess. We're going to be we're going to be cruising here through uh, our text here this morning, and starting here with the fact that Jesus is a man of prayer. If you have been a part of this series, you know Jesus' ministry has been intense, right? Jesus' ministry. Um, you know, has been dawn till dusk, crowds clamoring around him. You know, he's had trouble even eating. You know, he was almost at one point trampled by the crowds they were gathering around. We had to get out into a boat to teach. And so Jesus has been in an intense, busy season of ministry. His cousin, John the Baptist, was just beheaded. And in verse 32 of the text from last week, Jesus said to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Finally, they're looking for a period of rest and refreshment in their ministry. And then the crowd uh, found them when they were running away to their place of rest. And Jesus meets this massive crowd, has compassion on them, feeds uh, 5,000 people. And that sets up our text this morning. Jesus has been insanely busy. His life is just filled with ministry. His compassion has brought him into these beautiful ministry opportunities, but he's exhausted, right? The disciples are exhausted. Um, They need a break. They need to get away. And I don't know if you can relate to that. I mean, Jesus, the weight of Jesus' ministry, what he was carrying, I can't even imagine, I can't even fathom like crowds just hanging on his every word and people just pressing around him constantly. But but we can relate, right, with the own busyness and, uh, you know, how crazy our lives are can be in their own regard in our small, limited little portions that God can give us. Sometimes those feel like enough for us. And so what do we do? How does Jesus sustain himself for this hectic space of ministry? We pick up the story here. Uh, if you've got your Bible, and you're going to need it if you are following along, uh, Mark six forty-five through just going to be reading 45 through 46. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. See, Jesus, at this point, he needs a break. And he just orders his disciples away by boat. He's like, guys, you need to get out of here. You're going to go jump on a boat Uh, The crowd, you guys, I just fed 5,000 of you. I know you'd love more food and more teaching. I'm going to dismiss you guys. And then Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And our text tells us that Mark goes up in the mountain to pray in the evening. And then we find out that he didn't go down out to the disciples until the fourth watch of the night. So this is like 3 to 5 a.m. So Jesus spent possibly the whole night praying, like he needs time with his father, possibly catching up on some sleep as well. But Jesus is taking this strategic moment in his ministry for prayer. He knows he needs time with his heavenly father. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 35, we saw that he got up very early in the morning and went out into a desolate place. Here he's staying up late into the night. Jesus loved to open 
and close his days in prayer. There were so many people clamoring for his attention, so many responsibilities, so much to do, so much ministry and mission to accomplish that Jesus recognized with the weight of these responsibilities the need for prayer. And so opening and closing his days with his heavenly father was absolutely imperative. Jesus knows if he's not going to get distracted from his mission, if he's not going to get swept up into the crowds and the disciples' messianic expectations, they want a king that's going to overthrow Rome, if he's not going to be burned out by trying to be everyone to every, everything to everyone, right? he is going to need to set aside time to be with his father in prayer. He needs to be recharged, to be renewed, to be refreshed, right? Jesus is God, but he's also man. And in his humanity, he needs time to be together with his father. And I think our temptation is to think, isn't it that we're too busy for prayer? But if we can learn anything from Jesus' ministry, it was that the busier he became, the more he needed it. And this is the testimony of God's people down through the ages. My favorite testimony to this comes from Martin Luther, the great 16th century German reformer. He said this about his ministry and the responsibilities that he had. Work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer instead of his normal two hours. Right? The busier he got, the more he needed to prayerfully process it all. Anybody ever think through that? You're like, man, my to-do list is just, I mean, it's a mile long. I got so many responsibilities. I have so much to do, so many people to see. You know, I think I'm going to spend a couple extra hours in prayer. Anybody? Anybody out there? (laughs) It's it's kind of like counterintuitive to us, isn't it? We're, We're not necessarily our first, at least confessing for myself, my first instinct is not always to go to prayer, right? And especially not to set aside like hours of prayer like Jesus has done and like God's people have throughout the ages. Um, The busier we are, the more we need to stay grounded in God's purposes for our life because temptations and distractions abound. Can I get an amen on distractions, temptations? They're all over the place, right? Prayer helps us discern what is really important and what is just a distraction from the work God is calling us to. Like I can remember early in my life, I had to pick between you know, good things and bad things. Like, should I go play video games? Or should I go goof off with friends? Or go watch movies? Or, you know, do something, you know, go pull some pranks? Or, you know, you know, and then, or should I go do, like, good godly things? But as I've gotten older, I've recognized my decisions are now, like, hmm, should I choose between, you know, good things or better things? Or the best things? And what has helped me do that as my responsibilities have grown and increased is increasing time in prayer prayerfully processing before God the priorities God has put in front of me. And that's what we see in our text this morning. If I don't get three hours, right, I try, I don't have quite the responsibilities of Jesus or, or Martin Luther, but I try to get at least an hour. You know, I feel like functioning less than that, right, I'm going to be running on fumes. And maybe for you, you know, you're, you're like, okay, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, you know, I'm not one of the apostles, maybe I could get by in 20 minutes or, or, or five minutes or whatever it is, but, but without that time to prayerfully process your life before God, you're, you're going to be running in a lot of different directions. So, so let me give you maybe a few symptoms here, just to give you a little diagnostic test. Um, what are some symptoms of prayerlessness? Maybe indications that you need a little bit more uh, time to process your life 
uh, before God, right? Are you scattered in your priorities? Just find yourself kind of like pinging from one thing to the next without a lot of focus. Are you anxious? Do you find yourself a lot of the time operating out of anxiety or maybe anger? Like this happens to be sometimes kids kind of tap me on the arm and I'm like, I'm, in, I'm on mission here, kids. Like, do not distract me. I have important work to do. And insecurity, uh, fearfulness, uh, controlling, all of those things, right? Any of these things apply to you. It could be in your life that perhaps, right, you're not giving space to prepare yourself each day, right, to enter into all the responsibilities and callings that God has for you. And it could also be you're not getting time to process all of the big emotions and fears and relationships and responsibilities God has given you. Jesus models for us Right, a better way, time alone with his father in prayer to refresh and recharge. And we need that reminder too, right? If we're going to be the people God is calling us to be. And so Mark 6, 45, 46 gives us one of the rare pauses in Jesus' fast-paced ministry schedule. Jesus' times of prayer always propelled him into action, right? Jesus' times of prayer kept him on mission. And so quickly, we need to look at the mission Jesus is on because this is an extraordinary scene where Jesus is walking on water. He spends all night in prayer, uh, maybe gets a little bit of sleep here along the way, but then he comes out and walks on water to the disciples. So let's pick up the story here. If you're following along with me in verses 47 through 51. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. See, Jesus has already calmed a raging storm back in chapter 4, 35 through 41. But this time, he's not safely in the boat. He is out in the wind and the waves. He is walking towards the disciples in the middle of the night, and they are terrified by this. Uh, Critical scholars since the Enlightenment have gone to incredibly creative lengths to show that this wasn't actually a miracle, right? By some optical illusion, maybe Jesus was walking along the shore and, you know, maybe the disciples just thought he was walking on water or or maybe he was walking on a sandbar. He was way out there, if you know the beach, you know. Maybe he was just, you know, his ankles were just kind of below the surface. But clearly, you know, this couldn't have been a miracle. We had some fun family discussions about this in my home. My kids were like, yeah, he was wearing floaties apparently. So he was able to, maybe he was on a paddleboard. I don't know. What was he doing as he was kind of cruising along out there too? But this misses the point of Jesus' miracle, right? The miracles are meant to authenticate Jesus' identity. So, so notice what Mark tells us at the end of verse 48. This is really interesting. As I was in my study this week, so I was like, whoa, this is really cool. And when he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking in the sea, and he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass them by. What's going on here? Like, where is Jesus going? And why does he get in the boat if he's planning to go somewhere else? Like, does he have, like, dinner plans with somebody else on the other side of the sea? He, like, meant to pass them by and, and do something else? 
It's a really, I was like just puzzling, like, what, where was he going? What's, he, what's his pro? What's going on here? So I wanted to ask any of you Bible scholars out there, can any of you think of a reference in the Old Testament of God passing by somebody? Anybody think of a situation, a scene in the Old Testament where God passes by? What? Passover? Yeah, yeah, there's the Passover scene. Yeah, that's a classic God, actually, the angel of death passing over the homes and sparing them. Other, other instances? Yes, yes, Mount Sinai. Moses, there's a fascinating story, right? You know, Moses is like, God, show me your glory. And God's like, you can't see my glory, but I'll put you in a little hole in the rock. And I'm going to pass by and you're going to see my glory just, you know, through, you're going to see my backside because my glory would just dazzle you too much. And so you have this beautiful, there's one more story in there. You could think of, there's one other beautiful one. I'll just give it to you guys here and there. Elijah, if you remember the story of Elijah, you know, he's just, you know, Mount Carmel defeats the priest of Baal, but then he gets threatened, you know, by Jezebel and he's running for his life. And God meets him again in this beautiful place. He's at Mount Horeb and God puts him again in a little place. There's an earthquake. There's this massive hurricane. There's fire. And then God comes in a still small voice, but in both instances in these texts, God is passing by to show his glory. He's not passing by because he has something else to do. He's passing by because he wants to display all of his splendor, all of his glory, all of his majesty to Moses and to Elijah. And so here in our text, Jesus is not passing by because he's got somewhere else to go, someone else to see. Jesus is passing by because he wants to display his glory to his disciples. They want, he wants them to see his glory and majesty. And he does it by doing something only God can do, which is walk on water. If you know anything about the Old Testament, right, the water is a symbol of chaos. It's darkness. You know, it's danger. You know, when the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, it's this chaotic thing. Only God can bring order out of the chaos. Only God can bring shalom out of the chaos around us. And here is Jesus out. He's tamed the seas, the raging waters. Job uh, 9.8 tells us this. I love this text. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waters of the sea. And one of the great discourses, right, as Job is just reflecting on God's majesty and glory, he's the only one that can tame the unruly waters of the sea. And this is why when the disciples cry and tear, he doesn't keep walking, but calmly reassures them that he's no ghost. He says, take heart, it is I. I'm here, and the words here in Greek, ego ami, are interesting. The very same language of God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 3.14. He's saying, I'm the great I am. I am all that you need. And then to prove his point, when he walks into the boat, the wind and the waves immediately calm down, and there's just this perfect stillness. If you could just imagine the scene, like the wind and the waves calm and everything it's just perfect stillness, perfect calmness. Uh, peace has been restored to the world once again. It's a beautiful scene, right? Jesus' glory and majesty are on display. In our second scene in our text, which we didn't read for uh, the scripture reading, but it's equally remarkable, we see more of Jesus' glory, right? We see that Jesus, through Jesus, God's healing is extending to people. So in verse 53, when they crossed over, 
they, they came to the land of Gennesaret, right? Their boat seems to have blown off course. Instead of going to Bethsaida, they end up in Gennesaret on the other side of the lake. They moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Two extraordinary stories back to back. Jesus walking on water, exploring his majesty. Scene two, Jesus this remarkable campaign of healing. Um, People are running from the entire region. It's mass pandemonium. Jesus is this beautiful conduit of the healing. People that are just touching his robes are healed from the towns, the countrysides, the village. It's a beautiful movement of God's work. God's glory is on full display, right? And how are we to respond to Jesus, right? How are the disciples to respond to Jesus? I want to suggest to you that insightful application of all seeing ourselves in the story, right? And we're not the hero here, just in case you were wondering, uh, but we're the astounded disciples, right? We're the crowds that are running, not walking to Jesus, right? To get the healing that only he can offer. And one thing that is particularly striking in this text is how Mark characterizes the disciples' response to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. Notice this. This is a unique section here in Mark's gospel, what he says in verse 49. This is the disciples here. Back to the Jesus walking on water. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified, but immediately spoke to them, said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's a really interesting thing, right? Jesus has just cast out legions of demons. Jesus has just calmed storms. Jesus has just walked on water. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five small loaves and two small fish. But Mark shows us just how shocking and unexpected these miracles were. Disciples were not superstitious, primitive people willing to believe anything. No, these were seasoned fishermen who had spent their lives on the water. Right, The Sea of Galilee Um, would have been as familiar to them as your own workplace, as the places where you spend your time in your daily life. So when Jesus walked on water, he was upending everything they knew about their relationship with the sea. It was so shocking, so disruptive, they couldn't believe it. Their eyes were seeing it, their ears were hearing it. They could attest to it with their five senses, but they couldn't wrap their minds around it and their hearts were hardened. They still didn't get it even this far into Jesus' ministry after all the time that they have spent with him. And I'm personally glad that this scene is added for those of us who struggle to believe who are natural skeptics, right? Who are in, we're in good company with the disciples here. They're going to be taken in by some cheap parlor tricks, right? When you think about it, Doubt is actually not that surprising response to what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. It's what you would expect, and Mark makes no attempt to hide it. That after all they've seen and all they've heard, their hearts were hardened. Do you struggle with doubt, skepticism, the extraordinary, astounding things that we read about Jesus in the Gospels? Well, if you are, you are in good company this morning. Uh, Tim Keller uh, says it this way, He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. 
People who blissfully go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's whole faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long deliberation. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your belief to skeptics, including yourselves, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you even after you come to a position of strong faith to respect and understand those who doubt. So Mark makes space for us to consider our own hardness of heart. But there is, I think, an even more important question in our text. How is Jesus responding to the disciples' doubts? Fortunately, Jesus' whole ministry is designed to overcome their doubts. He continues to pursue them even in the midst of their hardness of hearts. Friends, this is what is so beautiful about our Savior. In one sense, Jesus' whole ministry is laser-focused on our hearts, right? The ministry of the new covenant is to give us new hearts, right? To give us a heart that longs for God. And so Mark introduces us to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and then lets Jesus' words and actions win our hearts, right? We hear over and over again Jesus' patience with his doubting disciples, with the, the crowds that are milling around him. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and then demonstrates the kingdom of God through mighty works of power. But this isn't just a one-and-done thing. The Gospels record miracle after miracle after miracle to drive home the reality of who Jesus is to skeptical people, right? We see miracles of healing happen continually. We see demons cast out repeatedly. Jesus stills the wind and the waves twice, Right? Jesus feeds vast multitudes twice. Jesus even raises the dead. Right? Where is it all leading? Right? How much more evidence will people need to believe that he's the Christ? Apparently a lot before we get to Peter's climactic declaration in chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Even that doesn't seal the deal for the disciples, right? Once he is arrested, the same Peter that declared that he was the Messiah now denies that he even knows him. It's only after Jesus shows the full extent of his love by sacrificing himself on the cross for them and then proceeds to defeat death itself and return to life that Peter is restored to ministry, a remarkable ministry that will lead him to testify to the risen Christ before the emperor in Rome. It's this same living Jesus who appears to doubting Thomas, who turns him into a man of resolute faith, who takes the gospel with him to India. It's after the risen Christ appears to his disciples that the church, right, is off, sent off on mission to the nations. It is the resurrection that ultimately vindicates Jesus' claim to being the Messiah and the Son of God who demands our total faith and total allegiance. 
Jesus is alive. He is seated on his heavenly throne and he is still pursuing hard-hearted people this morning, just like the disciples, people like you and me to get us back on mission to be a part of what he has called us to do in the world. And the only question is, really, are we going to be a part of it? Will we be people of faith, right? Will we be people of prayer? Will we be people out on Jesus' mission in the world? And thinking about what that will look like for each of us and the different callings God has given, the different spheres of influence, the different relationships in which we find ourselves. Well, time is running on here, and I want to close here with a final quote from C.S. Lewis, which I hope brings this all home to you, just the presence of God, his love, his pursuit of us in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our hardness of hearts. Uh, Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, put right, up, put right up to your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out as a man may read what Plato or Mark said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in this very room, is doing things to you. It is not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much a God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has, at first only for moments, then for longer periods, finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same life as God, would share in his power, knowledge, and eternality. That is what Jesus is up for. That's what Jesus wants to do with hard-hearted people like me and like you. Oh, that we would be a church where we can face our doubts, where we can face our questions, where it could be a safe place for us to do that, but a place where we're becoming increasingly people of prayer, people on mission with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his pursuit of hard-hearted people like us. Yeah, we thank you for his love for us, the way he tracks us down wherever we run and follows us. God, we pray that you'd make us increasingly a people like Jesus, people of prayer, people on mission for him. And so would you meet us today right here, uh, our church, and move us out onto your beautiful mission. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.